Veni Vidi Vici are the three most famous words from Julius Caesar, the great Roman general and statesman. And after a decisive victory in battle in modern-day Turkey, Julius Caesar wrote those three words back to his friends in Rome, Veni Vidi Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. I came, I saw, I conquered. And if you fast forward just a few years to the first century Israel, many Jews were looking for a very similar type of military-like Messiah figure who would come and see the oppression taking place and conquer the Romans. That's what they wanted, but that's not what they got. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 11 to see the type of leader Jesus was. Mark chapter 11. For weeks now, we've been seeing that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. This repeated phrase in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And here in Mark chapter 11, we see what happens once he got there. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem here in Mark chapter 11, he comes to the temple. He sees the oppression going on in the temple. And then he leaves. He came, he saw, and he left. There on your outline, you can see that's exactly the format we're going to follow together this morning as we take a look at a withered worship there in the temple in Jerusalem. First, number one on your outline, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we see Jesus' arrival, this event we call the triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday event where Jesus comes to present himself as the Messiah to the nation of Israel. Then number two on your outline, we're going to take a look as we skip to verses 15 and 19. We'll see what he saw there in the temple. The withered worship that was taking place. And then number three on your outline, we'll back up to the verses we skipped and see why he left. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14 and 20 to 26. He came, he saw, and we'll see why he left. So first, grab your Bible, look at number one on your outline, he came, Mark chapter 11, notice first, verse one. John Mark tells us, as they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Let's pause right here. Again, keep in mind. If you've learned nothing else, you've learned at least that that phrase, on the way, is repeated in the Gospel of Mark, right? We've been building up to this moment right here when Jesus has now found himself on the way to Jerusalem. He is now set for his arrival. He's on the way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross in order to lay down his life for our sins. And here in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, tells us they're approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives. Keep in mind as well that it's Passover season. 
And because it's Passover season, thousands of Jews would have been coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And because of this huge influx of people, it was common and it was necessary for many people to stay in the outside towns and villages surrounding Jerusalem, including Bethphage and Bethany there on the Mount of Olives. Just about a mile away was the village of Bethphage and nearby Bethany as well. Bethany, by the way, was the hometown of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this is where typically Jesus would stay when he would come to Jerusalem. But again, Jesus has been on his way to Jerusalem for many, many uh, months now. And verse 11 tells us as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage near Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, notice he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, And immediately, another repeated word in the Gospel of Mark, immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it back here. I want you to notice the incredible detail John Mark records of Jesus' words here. And Jesus tells his disciples to go into this village opposite them, and there will, they will find this colt, this donkey. Now, this is no incident. This is no just random detail. This is, in fact, prophesied hundreds of years earlier. You don't have to turn there, but jot down two Old Testament passages. Zechariah chapter 9... Zechariah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9. See, in Zechariah chapter 9, God gave a prophecy through the prophet Zechariah that one day the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And then in Daniel chapter 9, God gives a prophecy to the prophet Daniel predicting the exact date upon which the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. And so when you take both of these prophecies and put them together, they're fulfilled right here on this moment, this day called the triumphal entry of Jesus, where Zechariah 9 and Daniel 9 are fulfilled as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on the very day Daniel prophesied, presenting himself as the Messiah, the King of Israel. So Jesus sends his disciples ahead to prepare, and then notice what takes place, verse 4. In obedience, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And just like Jesus said, some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their coats in the road or literally on the way, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. 
I want you to try to picture this scene in your minds. Again, the fulfillment of Daniel 9 and Zechariah 9 here as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey on the very day Daniel prophesied. Messianic fervor would have been high on this Passover season. And here you have Jesus presenting himself as the Messiah of Israel. There's several things I want you to take note of here. First, notice that there are this just huge group of people. There are those who are following Jesus and those who are going before him. He is surrounded by people. Notice as well that these people are not silent. Verse 9, they're shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Those surrounding Jesus, they're recalling the ascent psalms. Psalm 113 through 118. The psalms of ascent. These are psalms that Jews would have recited and shouted aloud as they were moving up in elevation, ascending to Jerusalem. And in these ascent psalms, we see this word repeated over and over again, Hosanna, verse 9, and Hosanna, verse 10, Hosanna in the highest. This word, Hosanna, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word which means, oh, save us now. The people are shouting, oh, save us now. And finally, notice as well the phrase there, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. You can jot down 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God gives an incredible promise to David that one of David's descendants will sit on a throne there in Israel forever and ever. And here Jesus is demonstrating himself as the promised one. The Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel. But again, try to picture this scene in your mind. The excitement, the praise, the celebration as the one you have been waiting for your entire life finally arrives on his way to Jerusalem. I love this scene and I love the quote, I've shared this with you before, but I love the quote from Corey Ten Boom, who was once asked how she deals with all the fame that she has received because of her ministry. Corey Ten Boom said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing their praises, do you think that for one moment, it ever entered the head of that donkey that all that praise was for him? <laughs> she said, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I will give him all the praise and all the honor. And that's the beautiful scene we see here in the triumphal entry of Mark chapter 11. But then we come to a very curious verse in verse 11. After all of this excitement and 
all of this praise and celebration. Notice what John Mark tells us there in verse 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 says, Jesus entered the temple, or entered Jerusalem, and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left. He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He came, he saw, and he left. Kind of an anticlimactic ending to this day, the triumphal entry of Jesus. He came, he saw, and he left. But on the next day, he came back. Let's take a look at number two on your outline. We're going to skip over to Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. We'll come back to verses 12 through 14 in just a little bit. But on the next day, which for the record, Palm Sunday probably took place on a Monday. Sorry to spoil that for you, but it probably took place on Monday. So the next day is Tuesday, verse 15. Mark chapter 11, verse 15 says, When they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. Let's pause here. So this is now Tuesday of Passion Week. And once again, Jesus enters into the temple. Now we're told in the other gospels that Jesus not only comes to the temple, but the specific place in the temple he comes to at this point is the court of the Gentiles. The important thing you need to understand about the court of Gentiles is this is the only place in the temple complex where Gentiles were allowed to go to worship. This was supposed to be a place of worship for Gentiles like you and me. So now on Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus comes to the temple, and what does he see? He came, he saw, Notice verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations or the Gentiles? But you have made it a robber's den. He came and he saw. And what did he see there in the temple and the court of Gentiles? He basically saw a flea market, a bazaar, a marketplace. Jesus came to the temple. And he saw all of this taking place, the people buying and selling in the temple and the money changers' tables and those who were selling doves. Now, as a bit of background, the high priest Caiaphas, he's the one who authorized this because certainly they needed to offer the right kinds of sacrifices and there needed to be a place for the money exchange to take place so you could offer the proper uh, uh, temple tax there in the temple. 
But of all of the places that Caiaphas allowed for this to take place was there in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles were allowed to worship. Again, picture this in your mind, if you will. Or picture what it would be like if, this, if in this very room there are animals bleating, there are pigeons flying around, there is the call of money changers, right? Jesus came to the temple and he saw a cacophony of chaos here in the temple complex. And so notice what he does. He overturns, verse 15, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise, merchandise through the temple because they had turned this temple, this place that's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, they turned it into a robber's den. And as you can imagine... Jesus' words and actions here don't sit well with the religious leaders. Notice verse 18. The chief priests and scribes heard this. And they began, notice, seeking how to destroy him. Because they were afraid of him. Because the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Surprising and disappointing that the religious leaders, those who have, should have most anticipated the Messiah's arrival, those who have been, should have been most excited to see the Messiah coming into the temple. Sadly, instead, notice what John Mark tells us. They began seeking how to destroy him. They began seeking the best way to kill him. And then notice John Mark tells us, though, they're afraid. They're afraid because they know the crowd loves him. The crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then notice verse 19, again, ending somewhat anticlimactically. Verse 19 says, when evening came, they would go out of the city. He came, he saw what was going on, and once again, verse 19, he left. Now, two days in a row, he came, he saw, and he left. Why? Let's take a look at number three on your outline. He came, he saw, he left. Let's jump back to verse 12 the verses we skipped, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Now, uh, let me explain to you first why I skipped these verses. If you've been here uh, for a while in our series in the Gospel of Mark, I've mentioned to you before one of the unique features of the Gospel of Mark is he likes to do what scholars call Markin sandwiches, right? Markin sandwiches, and uh, Markin sandwich is when Mark begins to tell a story, that's the first piece of bread, but then he pauses the story and tells another story. That's the meat in the sandwich. And then he resumes his original story. That's the second piece of bread, forming a Mark sandwich, right? So let's take a look at another Mark sandwich, Mark chapter 11, the first piece of bread, verse 12. On the next day, 
If you're keeping track, this is Tuesday of Passion Week. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he, Jesus, became hungry. Speaking of sandwiches. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he, Jesus, went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. This is a fascinating story, isn't it? So Tuesday of Passion Week, Jesus is making his way back to the temple, and there in the distance he sees this fig tree. He notices that the fig tree has leaves on it. Now, as a bit of background, fig trees are rather unique in that fig trees produce fruit, and then they produce leaves. Fig trees produce fruit first, figs, and then they produce leaves. So if you see a fig tree with leaves on it, then your natural assumption is that it should also have figs on it. Because a fig tree produces figs before it produces leaves. So Jesus sees this fig fig tree, and even though Mark tells us it's not the season for figs, because he sees leaves on it, it should have figs on it. And Jesus is hungry, so he approaches the tree, expecting to find figs, but finds none. And then verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Bizarre story. And then we're told his disciples were listening. That's the first piece of bread in the Mark and Sandwich. Now let's take a look at the second. Skip over to verse 20. This is now Wednesday of Passion Week. Verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Great observation, Peter. (laughs) But I think it would surprise you and me as well, right? So the next day you see this fig tree that yesterday had leaves on it. No figs, but it had leaves, and now it's completely withered up from the roots up, notice verse 20. These are the the two pieces of bread of the Mark and sandwich. So what in the world is going on here? What is the connection between the fig tree, the pieces of bread in the Mark and sandwich, and the temple, the meat here in the Mark and sandwich? What is the connection between the fig tree and the temple, and what lesson does Jesus have for his disciples? Let's take a look at verses 22 through 23. Mark chapter 11, verses 22 and 23 says, And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. 
several things I want you to notice here. First of all, notice the main exhortation Jesus has for his disciples in these verses is have faith in God. So whatever the connection is, whatever the lesson is, it has to do with faith. Jesus says have faith in God. That's the main exhortation. And then he explains, notice verse 23, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, notice the phrase, this mountain. And commentators argue back and forth about what exactly is Jesus referring to when he says this mountain. I believe Jesus is talking about the temple the Temple Mount, also called Mount Moriah, because contextually that's what we've been seeing, right? Jesus has been going to the temple. He's been going to Mount Moriah. He's been going to the Temple Mount, and so I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about Jerusalem's temple, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. He's gone to the temple, and he has found it lacking just like this fig tree. And so he says to his disciples, whoever says to this mountain, the temple mount, be taken up and cast into the sea. Notice that phrase, cast into the sea. If you've been with us through our study of the gospel of Mark, we've seen this reference to the sea multiple times. And the sea is the place of chaos and destruction. Jesus here is foreshadowing what's going to happen where the temple will be destroyed. Because the Jewish people, as we've seen here, have rejected him. And Jesus is picturing the chaos and destruction of the temple. But the final thing I want you to notice in these verses is, again, the repetition of the importance of faith. Verse 22, have faith in God. And then verse 23, whoever does not doubt but believes... So what's Jesus' point? Well, the temple was the place of worship. The temple was the place where one might expect to find the fruit of faith. But that's not what Jesus found. That's not what he saw when he went there. But Jesus' point, the point he's making here, is that the, the temple is going to be tossed into the sea. The temple is going to be destroyed but you can still have faith in God even without the temple. You can still have faith in God even without the temple. Second, you can have prayer without the temple. You can have prayer without the temple. Notice verse 24. Continuing his lesson to his disciples, he says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Notice the emphasis here Jesus places on prayer. All the things which you pray and ask. Faith and prayer go hand in hand. Remember back in verse 17, Jesus called out the religious leaders because they turned the temple from a place of prayer, a house of prayer, into a robber's den. So Jesus here, I believe, is teaching that the loss of the temple does not mean the loss of prayer. Rather, a new house of prayer, if you will, will be formed through these followers of Jesus, these disciples of Jesus, later called the church. And third, 
verses 25 and 26, if you don't have the temple, you might also think that there can't be forgiveness because the temple is where sacrifices were made, but Jesus clarifies that as well. Notice verses 25 and 26. He says, wherever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Here we see an emphasis on forgiveness, right? By the way, verse 26 in your Bible is maybe missing, or maybe it's in brackets, or there's a footnote There's a lot of question about whether verse 26 was original when Mark wrote his gospel or if it was added later. Uh, The good news is that almost the exact same wording is found in the gospel of Matthew. So even if this verse was not original to Mark's gospel, it certainly uh, was included in the gospel of Matthew. But take a look in detail here of what Jesus is saying. This might make us a little bit uncomfortable at first. He says, forgive. Forgive if you have anything against anyone, whatever the offense, whoever sinned against you, forgive them so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. And then he gives the negative, the flip side. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, we do need to be careful. Jesus here is not talking about salvific forgiveness. He's not saying you earn your salvation by forgiving other people. But what Jesus is here, I believe, addressing is our fellowship. Our day-to-day fellowship and our relationship with Jesus Jesus is here warning, listen, if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards your brothers and sisters, then God has the right to withhold that day-to-day fellowship forgiveness from us as well. It should seriously heighten the urgency we feel of forgiving one another. But all of this, if you will, is meant to show the connection between the withered fig tree and the withered worship that was taking place there in the temple. Jesus is here highlighting all of this to teach his disciples a lesson in this connection between the withered worship of the or the withered figs of the fig tree and the withered worship of the temple. I think that. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness were the missing fruit, if you will, that Jesus wanted to find in the temple but found none. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness was the missing fruit in the temple that Jesus expected to see but found none. The fig tree had the status of a tree with leaves that should have promised fruit, but it had none. And the temple had the status of a place of worship, 
but had none. And that's the lesson, that's the connection between the fig tree and the temple. It's the bad news, but the good news that I want you to see here is that you don't need the temple to have faith, to have prayer, to have forgiveness. That's Jesus' point here. On a positive note, Jesus is showing his disciples, he's demonstrating to his disciples that even when the temple is gone, even when the temple is destroyed, faith and prayer and forgiveness should continue. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness should continue through this new community of Jesus' followers. And that's really the point of Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 26. He came, he saw, he left. He came to the temple, he sees the withered worship that is there, and he leaves. Now for you and I, on a positive note, as we apply Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26, what I want you to see here is that we, you and I, followers of Jesus, we are called to be uh, the community of faith, the community of prayer, the community of forgiveness that Jesus expected to see there in the temple. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 26 is an invitation for you and I to live out the faith, the prayer, and the forgiveness that Jesus desired to see. Let's talk about each of those three elements, if you will, for just, if you will, for just a moment. First, faith. Faith. Jesus came to the temple and expected to see faith, but instead he saw ritual. He expected to see faith, but instead he saw ritual. And in our relationship with Jesus, everything begins and ends with faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the starting point for not a withered worship, but a vibrant worship. And so let me ask you, do you have faith in who Jesus is? Do you believe in this one who has now been on his way to the cross to lay down his life for you and for me? Do you believe what the scripture says about Jesus? If not, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation here in this room or watching online to put your faith in him. You cannot have a relationship with God. You cannot have a relationship with Jesus apart from faith. Jesus came to the temple and expected to see worship or faith. Jesus came to the temple, he expected to see prayer. And like we see in this passage, followers as followers of Jesus were called to be a people of prayer. And prayer is an amazing gift God has given to us in order to commune with him and to communicate to him. Don't ask me to explain the mystery of how prayer fits within the framework of God's sovereignty of human freedom. I think that's a mystery we're not able to unravel. But the one thing I know is that we're called to be a people of tremendous prayer. And we're to pray, as Jesus says here, we're to pray believing that God is able and willing to do those things for which we pray that fit his will 
are done for his honor and for his glory. Prayer, the second thing I want you to see here, prayer is essential for a vibrant worship. It was missing in the withered worship of the temple. It's essential for a vibrant worship today. The third and final thing I want you to see here is the importance of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The temple was a place where forgiveness was found. The temple was a place where people could offer sacrifices to God and in faith believe that they were forgiven. What's fascinating here in these verses in Mark chapter 11 is Jesus' emphasis is on our forgiveness of one another. On our forgiveness of one another. And we see forgiving one another is a reoccurring theme in the teachings of Jesus and really throughout the New Testament. The idea is pretty simple that we who have been forgiven much by God, how can we withhold forgiveness to anyone else? That as followers of Jesus, as people who are called to be in a community of faith and prayer, we're also called to be in a community of forgiveness towards one another. That those who've experienced the undeserved mercy of God are called to extend it to others as well. And I would also add that the flip side is true. That if we have sinned against, if we have wronged our brother or sister, then we should take the initiative and go and seek their forgiveness and ask their forgiveness. But these three things, faith and prayer and forgiveness, were the missing fruit that Jesus desired to see in the temple and found none. And so we as his followers are invited to model those fruit in our life. And there on the back side of your outline, your application questions are found. And your one thing for this week is this. And I really want you to ask yourself this. How can your religious activity look alive on the outside but dead on the inside, just like the withered fig tree, just like the withered worship in the temple? What does withered worship look like today? But positively, instead, how is God calling you to manifest the fruits of faith, prayer, and forgiveness in your life and your walk with Jesus. Here in Mark chapter 11, we see the danger of a withered worship. Jesus came to the temple. He saw what was going on. And he left. The good news is that here in just a few chapters, Jesus will come to the temple once again, this time being led by Roman guard. He will see once again, this time he'll see his accusers hurling insults at him while he's nailed to a cross. And that time when he comes and sees, he will conquer sin and death. He came, he saw, he did conquer. And because of that miraculous event, we are now invited to offer to him our vibrant worship of faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Father, we do, first of all, confess to you, at times we come to you with a withered worship. We come to you with empty ritual. We come to you lacking the faith, 
the prayer and the forgiveness that you desire to see in us. And forgive us, Father. And Father, we ask that by your Spirit, because of the resurrection of Jesus, you would bring about in us a vibrant worship. A worship that is filled with incredible faith in who you are and what you've done. A vibrant worship that's filled with prayer, trusting in who you are and in your sovereignty and in your goodness. And we ask that you would give us a vibrant worship as we forgive those who have sinned against us, just like you, Father, have forgiven us because of your Son. And so, Father, now as we lift up our voices in song to you, fill our hearts, fill this place with a vibrant worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.